Hi there, everybody, and welcome to the Rupa Subramania show. I am Rupa Subramania. This week, I'm joined by Aaron Woodrick. He's director of the domestic policy program at the McDonnell Laurier Institute here in Ottawa. He's a lawyer, and he's been on the show before. And this week, he joins me in uh, discussing a range of different things that have been in the news recently, including former Liberal MP Catherine McKenna calling conservatives arsonists for a spate of wildfires this past summer. So without any further ado, please welcome Aaron to the show. Aaron, welcome back to the show. It's uh, wonderful seeing you again. Um, today, I was hoping to chat with you about what's been in the news recently and what I feel is like the increasing craziness associated with uh, the the, um, the ruling uh, um, uh, political establishment and also the woke left. So let's start with perhaps the looniest of all claims. Um, you know, after the summer of uh, spate of summer wildfires uh, in Canada, uh, former Liberal MP um, and Cabinet Minister Catherine McKenna has called conservatives arsonists because they don't support the carbon tax uh, that the liberals and the NDP support. Where does one even begin with this? <laughs> well, Ms. McKenna has never been shy about gaslighting on her concerns. You know, she used to play the victim when she was a cabinet minister. To be fair, there were some really nasty things done to her. And I don't, you know, I don't uh, think any of that was reasonable. And we should all, you know, condemn that stuff. But, you know, now she's not a minister anymore. She doesn't have to be on social media. She seems to still revel in going out and saying these over-the-top things, which to me suggests that, oh, well, you know, maybe you were not that innocent uh, to begin with. But uh, with respect to the climate change stuff specifically, look, my, I have a simple question for her, which is if Canadian, uh, Canadian climate change policy can help stop wildfires, A, why haven't you guys done it yet? Because you've been in power for, you know, your government's been in power seven and a half years. So really, this is a failure on you. You know, if Canadian climate change policy can stop wildfires, why hasn't the Trudeau government done it? Why is he pointing? Why are they pointing fingers at, at uh, Pierre Pauly? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the obvious answer is they can't. And if you want to ask them questions like, well, how high, you know, how high does the carbon tax have to be to stop wildfires? That's the question I'd like to ask. This is, Rupa, it drives me nuts that these folks want to have it both ways. Um, they, on the one hand, insist that, you know, Canadian climate change policy is so pivotal and so fundamental, but also that it's a global problem that we can only all solve together. Well, which is it, right? I mean, the reality is Canada climate change policy is a tiny, tiny drop in a bucket. And we could literally do everything or nothing and would not have any impact on whether, you know, Yellowknife and Kelowna are burning today. That, that It's just disingenuous to say that. I know people are going to have debates about climate change policy and what to do about it. That's more of a moral argument. That is not a practical argument. You know, you could say we morally need to do our share. I, I understand all of that. But as a practical matter, Canada's climate change policy has zero impact on global climate change. And liberal government trying to gaslight people into thinking that if we drop the carbon tax, you know, it's somehow going to change the number of wildfires we have is just a lie. Yeah, I mean, on that topic about climate change, um, you know, uh, you know, let's, you know, uh, take that as an example. We're told uh, these wildfires are because of climate change, although we know that, um, you know, a singular event cannot be blamed on yeah. Climate change. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate um, and discussion about what's exactly causing these wildfires. Um, there are some credible claims I've come across that show that arsonists were actually responsible for much of the wildfires in Quebec, perhaps even in BC. I'm not so sure about that. 
But, you know, how is it that, you know, what, what is, it's almost like the panic around COVID-19 has now been replaced by climate change, fears about climate change, that basically everything that is happening, like I get these alerts on my phone, as, and I'm sure as you do, every time there's a thunderstorm or, you know, there's like multiple sure. weather alerts, it just makes you very anxious and scared. Is that is that what's going on here? Well, look, part, it, it, is, it is impossible to determine whether a singular weather event is because of climate change or not. I mean, right, that, that, a single event is not climate, it is weather. Uh, now, is there an argument that over time, you know, in the long term, climate change increases the frequency? So it doesn't it's not responsible for every event, but say, you know, you used to have uh, 10 hurricanes. Now, because of climate change, a few years later, you have 12 or 15. That's plausible. I'm not you know, I don't think there's any that's a plausible argument. But what we're hearing um, from the sort of what I would call the eco extremist uh, crowd is that every time there's an extreme weather event, they point the finger at climate change. And people are not stupid. We know that there have always been these weather events. If you're arguing that we're having more because of climate change, okay, then say that. But don't take every example and say, because of, you know, because of climate change, that's why we had this tornado, or that's why we had the bubble. People don't believe that. And it just looks ridiculous. And it is, it is a, a frankly, a moral panic. Um, and I think, frankly, it actually probably does a disservice to the argument for climate change because people start to roll their eyes and say, well, everything is the fault of climate change. So I actually don't yeah. think they're convincing more people. I think they're actually hurting their own cause by exaggerating it and, and, and frankly, looking like they're trying to exploit a tragedy to advance what is essentially their sort of ideological agenda. Yeah. Well, let's uh, turn to from uh, from Catherine McKenna to Melanie Jolie, our um, um, current uh, foreign affairs minister, external affairs minister, foreign affairs minister. Um, she came up with uh, uh, another whopper as far as I'm concerned. She said that Canada has a game plan uh, to deal with the rise of the far right in the U.S. I think what she presumably meant was if Trump were to uh, get reelected, uh, if there was a, um, a, a Donald Trump returning to the presidency. Uh, and in one news article where uh, which I read, uh, an expert um, uh, claimed that there would be an influx of political uh, refugees from the U.S. to Canada if uh, Trump were reelected. I, I I had to read it like several different several times to make sure that I was reading it right because it's it's one thing to you know for Melanie Jolie to talk about a game plan. But I just found these expert takes to be just so incredibly extreme. What do you make of this? What does it tell you about the perception of the Canadian left on, on this country's importance uh, and their importance in this country? Well, first, the, the first uh, thing that I noticed was what a breach of protocol this is. I mean, it seems to Absolutely. me that foreign affairs minister, when when asked about like what's happening in a foreign country and people changing the governments there, I think the diplomatic answer is like, well, Americans will decide and, you know, we'll respect that choice and we'll deal with it for her to launch into this like you know concern about all these well first of all we've already seen this movie donald trump was already president once america mm -hmm. managed to survive it uh, it was a chaotic four years i'm not going to deny that but we you know everybody survived it america survived it intact um there was no you know we didn't have uh uh refugees from blue states you know trying to sneak across the border at roxham road or anything like that uh, so I think I think it's a bit overstated. Uh, what's other interesting too, Ruba, is contrast the differing reaction. 
in 2016 when Donald Trump was a surprise to a lot of Canadians. Um, they dealt with it. Uh, you know, to their credit, they sort of they, they took the relationship seriously, managed it as best they could. Again, Donald Trump, a mercurial guy who, you know, a lot of foreign leaders had difficulty mm -hmm. dealing with him. But we managed it. We managed to renegotiate NAFTA. They took great pride in saying we managed the relationship. Fast forward to today. Now they're talking about like a completely different attitude. I suspect it has something to do with the fact that back then they were a new government with a lot of political capital. Today they are struggling and they're looking for another bogeyman. So if they mm. can frame themselves as a sort of standing up to the, you know, crazy Americans um, or the evil Yankees, you know, they're going to do that. So I think that's irresponsible from a, you know, we would hope that they would be adults about managing our, our relationship with our, with our neighbor and our biggest trading partner. And it seems like they're, prepared to play politics with that um if they think it's worth a few points yeah and also i'm struck by this um old argument which you know i used to hear a lot about a lot of this when i was a grad student uh that you know canada needs to diversify away from the u.s and uh, and and uh put more of its efforts into um, into the EU and cultivating a relationship there. Um, but as one of my professors told me, you know, this is our closest neighbor. I mean, this is, we need to really double down on this relationship as much as possible. And this talk of diversification is just complete nonsense. And I'm seeing some of those arguments again, like, you know, if, if, if Trump were to return that, you know, we should diversify away from the US, which kind of seems foolish. Yeah. And, you know, part of that other diversification was towards China before. Right. And we've seen how that's of turned course. out. I think there's been a cold mm. bit of a cold shower for a lot of folks about that. But yes, uh, you know, there are a lot of benefits to being as United States. I recognize that, you know, as Canadians, whether consciously or subconsciously, because we're smaller, because we are more dependent on them, we pay more attention to them than they do to us. Um, they're bigger, they have more money, they have more influence. Um, it's it's hard psychologically. We're always looking for a way to sort of minimize that. But we also need mm -hmm. to look at the upsides. We have so many benefits that come from being next to them as a neighbor. They are a huge market. Um, they're accessible. We speak the same language. We have share the same culture. I mean, it is it is a huge benefit to us. And I think it would be a mistake to, to take that too lightly. Um, yeah, I, I, I take the point that people say, well, we have to be prepared, you know, if if there is an event, you know, that people say in the extreme scenario of civil war. But that really just means Canada doing things that any any sort of grown up country would do things like having a functioning military, things like being able to do our own emergency search and rescue. These are things that comparable countries like our cousins down in Australia, similar sized country. I mean, they have the capacity to do these things because they don't have a neighbor like America to look after them. So if we really want to talk about <laughs> Canada, like you know, being an independent country and being yourself. Part of that involves spending money and making the hard decisions and investing in these things that, um, you know, we've been ba basically like the, the the teenager living in America's basement and, and asking mom <laughs> and dad to take care of us. And then we say, well, what if mom and dad kind of go nuts? Well, maybe it's time to grow up and take care of ourselves. Well, that's a great analogy. So um, let's let's talk about uh, Pierre Polyevre, um, uh and his meteoric uh, meteoric rise. Uh, hmm. And I feel like it's the first real change to uh, a, a real challenge to Trudeau since he uh, came to power in 2015. Um, first, let's talk about his makeover. Um, <laughs> I personally happen to like it. Uh, I think it's it's great that he got rid of the glasses and he's, you know, he's more, uh, um, you know, he's he looks more down to earth. Uh, and he looks sure. great next to his wife. Uh, and um, do you think do you think this makeover, I know a lot of politicians under go um, uh, minor changes to their appearance. Do you think it's enough 
just based on this alone, do you think it's enough to defeat the Liberals and Trudeau? Well, well, who knows? Don't <laughs> underestimate the power of the makeover. I mean, remember Stephen Harper pulled out the sweater vest and the kitten. I mean, I think that was pretty devastating <laughs> for the opposition. But look, this is nothing new. I mean, people are kind of, uh, people who don't like him will poke fun at it because, uh, you know, because he kind of, you know, he sounded a bit nerdy and had the glasses and now he's got rid of that. And, you know, you can see he's been working out. And so, but this is just standard for all politicians. I mean, uh, did anyone want to deny that part of Justin Trudeau's wave in 2015 was the man's sex appeal? I mean, that, that's just a benefit that you have in politics. You, you play to your strengths, you play to your advantage. If uh, and you minimize your liabilities, and so if something like the optics of his glasses were, were a barrier, why not just mm. get rid of that so that you can you can you know work with the things that suit you well? So I I don't think it can hurt. I imagine that these days, uh, you know, political parties they don't do these things on a whim. They'll focus group them and test them, and so there must be something to it. Um, mm -hmm. Substantively, you know, uh, I don't think it make a huge difference. But if if it's going to, for example, um, make them a little more appealing, so people give them a second look. Um, why not do it, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And But more seriously, Aaron, like I've noted with some disappointment, I've talked about this a few times and also written about it in the National Post, that the Conservative Party um, has uh, stayed away from what I think are some some hot button issues on mm -hmm. the cultural side of things uh, and also immigration, immigration, gender ideology. I think these issues animate uh, Conservative voters. In, in fact, uh, immigration is even animating people on the left um, because their argument is now self-serving because all of the things that they care about is now in jeopardy because the the institutions, the system just can't support the, the large number of people coming in. Sure. Um, but so uh, uh, Pierre Polyar was basically stuck to talking about the affordability crisis, which is a very important issue, uh, and the ineptitude of the Trudeau government. Um, do you think uh, this this uh, this is strategic? Do you think this is going to pay off? Does, do you think this will work in the end? Yeah, good question. I mean, you're right on the on the housing point. I mean, he's basically gone all in on housing. He's mm -hmm. uh, he's made this the centerpiece. Of course, immigration is connected to housing, right? Because part of the Part of the reason immigration has become a more uh, explosive issue in this country is precisely because of housing. I think perhaps, um, you know, the thinking in there, and I'm not privy to any of it, is that uh, maybe by addressing the housing issue, that will take most of the sort of dangerous um, polarization around immigration, uh, take the sting out of that. That might be true. But I think it, uh, you know, I think we're actually, it's a good thing in this country, we're actually talking about immigration again. Um, yes, there are there are xenophobes in this country, but the vast majority of people who are concerned about immigration are people that it's just a numbers game. They're just like, well, where are we going to put them? You know, if we had mm. housing, Canadians could all afford houses and there were plenty of places for new new Canadians to live. I think more far more people would say whatever, you know, well, the more the merrier. But but we don't have that. And we're a long way from that. And so I think we do now have a serious conversation about and, you know, we're getting into the weeds about it. Um, you know, not all immigrants are made equal in terms of in terms of the uh, pressure they put on the system. Right. So, yes, we say, well, we need more doctors and we need more people to build the houses. OK, well, you look at what class of immigrants uh, those are. But then we've got this, which, frankly, to me, is a bit of a backdoor is is students. International students are coming in that the numbers have skyrocketed over the last mm. 10 to 15 years. The, you know, campuses, the universities and colleges are not keeping up. Um, these are essentially cash cows for these post-secondary uh, education students because they, they can charge international students a lot more. Um, this is the sort of big loophole to me that needs the most attention because it is 
it is a massive size. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of students. And it's not that I have, wish them any ill will, but it's like if we have nowhere to put them, they're basically being taken advantage of and used as cash cows and they get here and there's nowhere to live and there's no prospects for them after the fact. That's that's bad for them. It's bad for Canadians and it poisons the well on, on immigration generally. Yeah, absolutely. Like I came here as an international student 25 years ago, and I still remember like there were just a handful of us coming to Canada to study. Uh, but that but that's just exploded since since mm -hmm. I was a student. And uh, and I'm hearing these horror stories of students who um, can't, uh, you know, they're like five, six students living in a room. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's 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 almost like um, the kind of situation that you you would find yourself in India, <laughs> where most of these students come from. So it's, yep. it's kind of bizarre to see that uh, playing out here as well. Um, just uh, turning to the political calculus, Aaron, um, you know, uh, situation in Canada has always been different than in the U.S. In the U.S., you basically have two major parties uh, that split the vote evenly, and it's a coin coin toss who becomes president. Whereas in Canada, if you add together the Liberals and the NDP, they always get a bigger percentage of the votes sure. um, than the Tories. And now with the present alliance uh, between the Liberals and the NDP, um, we have a possible template which will keep them in power in perpetuity. Uh, hypothetically, even if the Tories win the most seats. Um, yeah. What do you make of this scary scenario? <laughs> Uh, look, I don't I actually don't think that that's very likely. You know, I, okay. I think that we've because of the way the system is set up because it's first past the post, they can get a come. I mean, people love to add the liberal and NDP votes together all the time to get this number, but they're two separate columns, right? They don't. Mm -hmm. It's not like in a, you can add them up after the fact and, and, and they, you know, if the Tory gets 40 and the liberal gets 30 and the Democrats 20, that they can add the 30 and the 20 together. That's not the way it works. And, and we got to remember, too. Um, you know, the liberals have been in, in power, but out of the last, I think it's out of the last six, seven federal elections, the liberals have only won the popular vote once in 2015. There are actually more Canadians who have voted conservative than liberal in six out of the seven uh, last seven elections. That is a significant number. Now, the liberals have the benefit in the system that the votes were in the right places, the way our system works, that they win more seats and retain power. But people talk as if there's this huge hill to climb for conservatives and they got to convince so many people in this huge, they don't. Mm. It's a, this is a game of inches. It's always been a game of inches uh, like a, a few percentage swinging one way or another can have huge uh, changes in outcomes and I think what you're seeing right now in the polls and a lot of the polls are not very good for the liberals right now down seven to ten points all regions all demographics um, you just see fatigue uh, like I don't want to downplay I got a lot of criticisms of this government I think they've been bad at governing generally and have a lot of bad policies but all governments pile up baggage after a significant amount of time and uh, governments have way way more advantages than opposition parties generally but the one liability they have is baggage and opposition parties have none they can say whatever they want they can promise whatever they want justin trudeau knows all about this because he did it to stephen harper in 2015 so if they find it annoying right now that's that pierre polyev is blaming them for everything well that's how opposition works. Opposition parties blame the people in power saying you're not fixing the problems. Yeah. They promise mm -hmm. to fix it. Now, that's easier said than done, but they at least deserve a chance to do it because they haven't been the ones failing at it for the last, in this case, eight years. Yeah. Um, final question for you, Aaron. Uh, let's talk about the far right, the scary far right uh, in Canada. They're everywhere, um, apparently. <laughs> apparently, 
I am far right as well. So um, and and a lot of other things. Um, you know, this is this is obviously a smear tactic from those who, um, you know, uh, from those on the left who basically, if you don't agree with their agenda, you're seen as far far right. I find this uh, the, this so incredibly bizarre and amusing uh, because you know my my experience is that most conservatives in Canada uh, would be considered as centrist or center left in the U.S. Uh, so f the fact that many of us are smeared as far right is just downright ludicrous. Um, what does this tell us about? how far to the left Canada has drifted in the last 10, 10 years or more? I think it's a, this is just a classic tactic to try and disqualify any sort of dissent, right? And you've just seen this happen on a number of issues. It doesn't matter what their issue is, you know, abortion or climate change or racism or even spending, right? Like everything is, if you don't like it, just call it far right. And then people will be too afraid to say anything. Um, I, I always ask when people, use that term if they're serious people and they want to have a conversation i want them to define like what do you consider what are the positions that you are calling far right uh and mm -hmm. i mean if they can identify something specific we can debate that but when i hear the term generally you just kind of roll your eyes i mean i've been called i've been called far right because i did i wanted a tax cut i mean i you at some point you just <laughs> sort of say okay well uh but but i i also think it's dangerous for left because you you know when you start to call too many things extreme um, the things that are the people that are actually extreme and everybody else, they kind of just merge together. And I don't think that's helpful. So I actually think the left is helping empower the far right, the real far right. And there's not very many of them, um, but they actually uh, uh, almost um, almost legitimize them by calling everything far right. So I think that's dangerous. And I think, uh, you know, Pierre Pauly has been accused of pandering to the far right. And the one example that's been in the news lately is this his policy about the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And this to, mm -hmm. one to me is, is amusing because my view is actually, I think Pierre Polyev is actually doing us all a huge favor by proposing a very simple, uncontroversial solution that doesn't require buying into more extreme conspiracy theories. All it requires is you to believe that this group, the World Economic Forum, is not a particularly helpful group. I mean, it's 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 kind of like almost a cartoon group of like all the terrible things about global elitism. You got super rich people jetting into Switzerland, you know, two thousand dollar night hotel rooms, hobnob. I mean, it's just a, it's a PR nightmare. Why don't we just not go? This is the simplest thing. It doesn't require, you know, you to believe that everybody that goes to Davos is meeting in like a, like Dr. Evil in a room and they're controlling everything. Maybe it's just Canada doesn't need to be there. You solve the problem by just not going. And in fact, if, you know, if, um, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh also came out and said, you know what, we won't send anybody to the World Economic Forum either. That would solve the problem. It doesn't require you to believe that they're an all powerful like cabal. It just requires you to believe that, you know, maybe the, these these people are not looking out for interest and we just shouldn't go. I, I, just, I think I actually think it's an elegant solution um, and it's a smart proposal. And I think more people should frankly embrace it. Yeah, I've written quite extensively about the World Economic Forum, and in fact, uh, um, Christian Freeland, yes, our deputy prime minister, who wrote all yeah, about uh, it. Yes. Yeah, she. She. I mean, in fact, that's where it all began. Uh, the the criticism of the World Economic Forum and the Davos crowd, and she called them plutocrats, and she currently sits on the their advisory board, which is uh, another uh, discussion in itself. Um, but you know, just to push you a little bit on this, Aaron. What if it's just it's just a club? It's just networking. You you could meet the same people, um, you know, 
in London, for example, you know, you go meet uh, Rishi Sunak or something, the Prime Minister of uh, the UK, um, and 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 you and you network with a bunch of people, the same set of people who would show up at the World Economic Forum, like business leaders, sure. um, I don't know, NGOs, uh, leaders of NGOs, and so on and so forth. Sure. So what 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 is it so spe- what is so special about the World Economic Forum when if you if you were to just think about it as a networking event? Sure. Well, look, it, it largely is. It's a question of how, um, you know, how transparent it is for one, right? Like, I and, and the mm-hmm. sort of accessibility. I, th- I think the, a lot of the problems with the World Economic Forum, frankly, are it's just it's a it's terribly against the political zeitgeist today. It's extremely rich people jetting mm-hmm. into a very expensive place to clink champagne glasses. I mean, it's just a nightmare. And so, just avoid that altogether. If you, you know, obviously, as a prime minister or the government uh, ministers, you're going to need to meet your counterparts from other countries. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But normally, there's a, there's a very sort of open, transparent process about that. Um, it's not all about money. It's not something where, like, you if you're the foreign affairs minister, for example, you go meet your counterpart in another country because of the role they have. It's not some you know guy who happens to be wealthy who comes in and gets your time. That's not the reason for the meeting. So I think um, I just think, like I said, I. I'm not I'm not a believer, if only because I, I have so much experience watching governments. They're too incompetent to impose a, uh, a global conspiracy theory. Um, but the, but I just think that these meetings are not helpful. I think they are people that are usually spreading bad ideas. And so just not being there um, it would be good and frankly would restore some trust. Uh, to me, that's the biggest concern. I, I do share the concern of a lot of people that we have massive, massive loss of trust in all our institutions. If simply not going to an event like the World Economic Forum will help improve that trust even a little bit, I think it's worth it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. And uh, that, well, thank you once again for sharing your insights with us. And uh, this was a great discussion. And I'm um, sorry, I'll have to leave it there. But uh, I hope to have you back again soon. Okay. Always a pleasure, Rupa. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you.